Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. I'm your host, Joy Keys. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter at Joy Keys, and also check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. Also, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me, SaturdaysWithJoyKeys at Hotmail.com. Send me some comments, questions. You can listen to the show on Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, iTunes, as well as here at Blog Talk Radio. I want to thank you so much for all your support. I really appreciate it. I hope you have enjoyed the shows and share them with friends and family. Well, today I have a prolific poet on, and we're going to be talking about her book, Crossfire. She has... uh, so many things to talk about. I told her I needed more than 30 minutes, um, but we only have 30 minutes. So I'm going to begin. Good morning, Stacey Ann Tin. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me, Joy. Thank you for coming on. Um, you know, I just was listening to you speak with your daughter in the background. I have a daughter. How has motherhood changed you in writing your poetry? Do you feel like you're censoring yourself? No, not at all. I mean, not not at all. Um, I'm not quite sure. I mean, like I, it's 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 an interesting question in that I've never really thought about censoring myself. I think mm-hmm. when other people's children are around, when they're in my space, I'm pretty much the same. However, when I go to other people's spaces and I'm having conversation, then I'm mindful of the fact that when people are in their own homes, they have every right to decide what their children hear or what their children aren't supposed to hear. So um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think when I'm in other people's houses, I'm maybe a little more, you know, considerate, a little more reticent to say just about anything. But when I'm in my own house, my kid has from birth been privy to my politics, my work. Um, and it's funny because, you know, people are like, oh, my God, you're going to encourage the kid to curse. And my kid is one of those kids who prefers not to, doesn't like it. And if you say it, she's like, mom, or other people say it, but why do you have to use that word? You know, there are other words you can use to describe what you mean. Mm -hmm. I saw you guys are doing this, um, I don't know if you're still doing it, but living room protests on YouTube. You want to tell the audience about that? um, Well, we've been doing these conversations, um, you know, I think a lot of people have questions about how to have political conversations, like difficult conversations about, you know, Black Lives Matter, about um, police brutality, about, you know, consent, about, uh, you know, how babies are made, how, what, what family is when you are talking about queer families or adopted families or mm-hmm. children mm-hmm. who are created in the context of donors, whether it's donor egg or donor sperm. I think some of those conversations can be difficult for children when the adult is not comfortable with the conversation. And lots of people, you know, from we're born, they tell us not to talk about so many things and they want to police how we talk about most things and they want to, uh, you know, add, you know, police lines and rail guards of gender and race and nationality to what we believe, what we think. So, uh, you know, of course, understandably, many of us have issues and, you know, difficult feelings around 
a lot of these topics about our bodies and sexuality and religion. And so I started really early having these conversations with the kid before she could speak, before, you know, I remember her being one month old and me um, changing her diaper and saying to her, you know, um, I don't know if you're giving me permission, but I've got to, like, wash you off because this is, you know, to keep you clean and keep you from infection. And mm-hmm. I've talked to you in these ways that I don't know if you're saying it's okay, but, like, I'm trying to do it in a respectful way. I'm having this conversation with her, this one-sided conversation, you know, this, you know, directing this monologue at her and, you know, looking up from my job as, you know, the diaper changer of the moment and saying, I don't quite know if this kid is even, like, understanding any of this or if it's even going anywhere and wondering if I was being a little bit of an idiot. But then I just kept going over and I just don't remember when she started responding in kind but I knew that, you know, as a toddler at, you know, one and a half, you know, when I would hold her and she would say, no, my body, you know, or when I would tell her, no, you have to do this. And she goes, no, I decide. I mean, which can be remarkably difficult for a parent of a toddler. But as she grows, I've seen where that serves her quite well when other people want to make, um, you know, you know, they want to make declarations or rules about her body and for her, you know, bodily autonomy. And mm-hmm. she refuses and she says, no, I'm sorry, that's not okay. Well, I, I understand, you know, part, partially um, because I, I'm a parent and I have, I'm a parent of a girl child. Um, but also, I, I, like I told you earlier before we came on, I did read your memoir and the things that you went through, um, you know, being molested, so that makes you um, definitely, you know, a little more on edge and aware of, you know, boundaries being crossed without your permission. Um, you know, molestation is still happening, um, and people sure. are still not believing. You know, so it's I think absolutely. it's great. You know, absolutely. Um, um, I think people, I think girls are, they learn the lesson early that it doesn't really make sense for you to speak out about anything because. Mm-hmm you know, most people won't believe you. And even if they believe you, they will treat you as if the issue is a nuisance and that a burden and, you know, no one will rise easily to the task of defending you, caring for you, listening to you, making room for your pain. Um, and so I, I, I've, I've and why do you think that is Stacey? And why do you think people dismiss it and, and don't want to talk about it or try to push it under the rug? Why do you think that is? You know, I think that, um, you know, sexuality, you know, even when it's good, you know, let's say in a very heteronormative situation, girl meets boy, boy likes girl, parents approve of it, they're at the right age, they're about to be married, you know, people still can't deal with the fact that those people are going to have sex or that they're going to be sexual with each other. So there's mm. almost no conversation around even the most sanctioned unions when it comes to sex. I mean, in, in, in um, heterosexual, you know, uh, you know, situations, familial situations, in almost all cultures, there isn't like a frank conversation about what happens when sex happens for the first time or for the sixth time or for the hundredth time or for in a time when the girl doesn't want it or when the boy can't perform or nobody talks about these things because everybody 
prefers to keep it in um, in secrecy. And I think it's because desire is dangerous because we never quite know what people will desire. You don't know why someone likes ice cream, chocolate ice cream versus vanilla. We don't know mm. why someone likes this person rather than that one. I mean, there are some things that, you know, match.com and harmony.com and eHarmony. And they have these algorithms to set people up. And and all of them, you know, Grindr, they all try to figure out this formula for what makes people attracted to each other. But Mm. no one, I mean, you know, they can say, okay, the more people have in common, the more they might be able to talk and the more there may be an opportunity for connection. But I don't think anyone can definitively say, this person will be attracted to that person. And right. it goes, it goes um, for, you know, whether it's boy versus boy, girl versus girl, boy to girl, person who doesn't identify as either gender, person who identifies as all the genders. I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty. And I think humanity is at its core uncomfortable uh, with uncertainty, with the unknown. Mm-hmm. You know, I was fortunate. I, I guess I was fortunate because my parents, they did talk to me. They gave me actually a little picture book with the chicken and the egg and then the dog and the dog and the human and the human. And, um, you know, and then, but see, with my daughter, I got even further where I talked to her and I said, you know the physicality, but it's the emotions that, and the desire, like you said, that comes out and that can overtake all the logic in your head. Uh, at the moment when you're with somebody that you're attracted to. Um, for sure, and, for sure. And you do things sure. that you don't, you don't expect that you're going to do, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and you allow things to happen that you may not be like, whoa, I really wasn't planning on going there, but and you're doing it, but when do I say stop? And then we get into this, you know, issue of male-female, and like you said, the, male, the female not really having a voice in our society. Um, you became a performer... Where, where and when did you find your voice to, to speak out and become a performer? You know, I don't know if it was a straight line so much. I mean, I've always been an outspoken person, but I don't know if I've really thought of myself as a a, a stage, you know, person who would be on stage. But mm-hmm. for a long time, I was a person with a very, you know, um, you know, in Jamaica, there's a cantankerous voice. Like, I would always be... Um, very willing to push back at things that don't seem right to me, even as a, a small child inside of homes where it felt as if I had very little power, but I still found the wherewithal to respond or to speak out or to push back at what felt, you know, like an injustice to me. Um, but I think when I when I came out as a, a lesbian in Jamaica on the campus of the university um, in my first year, and I was, you know, attacked um, in my final year on campus and um, sexually assaulted by a group of boys, I think that pushed me to consider America rather than Jamaica as my whole entire reality because I had never really considered leaving, leaving Jamaica. And, but mm-hmm. when, I, when that happened to me and I kind of needed a change of circumstances in every way, I needed to be outside of the range of where the thing happened, I needed to be in a completely different place. And the place that maybe pushed me towards um, the the part of me that really wanted to find, 
find a new place to be um, mm-hmm. was being fueled by like my queer identity. So being a lesbian meant I wanted to find a place where I could explore that lesbian identity. And that sounded like New York and really, you know, it was only James Baldwin's work. It was, you know, um, Audre Lorde's work. It was all of these, you know, people who wrote about life in New York that drew me to the place. And I had an aunt who lived two, two hours north of New York City, up in New mm-hmm. York State. And I, um, I, I, I landed there and, you know, figured out my way down to the city and ended up in the village and ended up among the poets and writers, ended up in this kind of crazy, um, you know, beautiful community of, you know, activists and artists and radical thinkers uh, where I felt so safe in the general strangeness of the group that I Mm -hmm. felt that whatever I was, it was okay to express it. And it was there that I found the ferocity of um, telling my story about being queer and lesbian and woman and abandoned by my mother or, you know, any of the parts of the story that might resonate with other people who have similar experiences. Um, Because, you know, there's so much in any life to tell. So you have to decide what you tell. You know, in the first. So how uh, did you how did you decide what to tell in Crossfire? Because this was well, Crossfire is a, a collection of, of yeah. Crossfire is a collection of poems. I I hadn't allowed any of the poems to be published in any kind of meaningful way over the last twenty five years that I've been a fairly well known poet. Um. And. When I decided that I wanted to publish something, that I wanted to have a testimony of my life as a writer here in New York, um, when I looked at the poems, I had poems spanning 25 years. And so what we did is we came up with a collected works. And the collected works, um, the collected works became just the poems that we could find we wanted to do with the, you know, the poems that everybody knew and loved, but we also wanted to add, you know, poems that told stories that were before untold mm-hmm. on the stage of my career. So okay. that's how we kind of came to this collected works. And then we divided it up into sections. So, you know, we talk about love or we talk about family or we talk about like the political journey or New York City or um, it, it comes in many sections. Yeah, Crossfire is the first section, and that's the name of the book as well. Where did that come from? Were you in the middle of turmoil? Were you trying to make a decision? What what is the meaning of Crossfire? It was pulled from the title poem called Crossfire. Mm -hmm. Um, And the Crossfire, the word, is, um, and I feel like my whole life, people have been trying to figure out the categories that I fall in. And, you know, my father is Chinese, my mother is black, I'm 100% Jamaican, I'm a black Jamaican, you know, but I live in New York City, and, uh, you know, I'm a mother, but I'm, I don't have a, you know, a, a picket fence and a partner and two children. Um, you know, I went out and fought really dif- difficult battles in order to get pregnant on my own and do it on my own. I am 
so many things I think, but I don't I don't feel as if I fit squarely in whatever category people are trying to um, to paint me, and so mm-hmm. um, I feel like I come under fire from a lot of varying sections of my community. Like Jamaicans feel I I, I oversell the home of the, the the violent homophobia that might happen in Jamaica. Um, you know, uh, the, the the queer community in Jamaica they think I undersell it. Um, <laughs> That's you know, funny. I thought you I thought you did a great job. Pretty sh- I, I was pretty clear that if I was uh, you know homosexual or uh, transsexual or whatever, I, if I'm not heterosexual in Jamaica, I'm gonna have some problem. I should not talk right, about I it. Feel like, and I, feel I like should people, keep it undercover. You know. I feel like people who have had like much more violently vicious experiences, they say that I haven't gone far enough to talk about what actually happens to people there. Well, that's not, not your I, story, you know. That's I not your story, that, you know. You know not, so. I'm not pushing back at them. I'm, I'm not mm-hmm. even saying that they're right. I'm only saying, I'm only explaining the crossfire bit. So yep. that's what I get from the kind of radical queer community who I think would rather, um, would rather I spend more time talking about, uh, you know, the, the, the violence that... Uh, pre- put upon the bodies of queer people in Jamaica, which is awful in many ways, but they're also good things as well. So I think that, you know, you know, I, I, I still see relationships in bloom in Jamaica, beautifully so in queer individuals who live full lives in Jamaica. That's one uh, part of it. There's also another part of it. The black community thinks that I talk about being gay too much. The white mm. lesbian community thinks, that I, you know, community thinks that I talk about being, you know, you know, being black too much. I mean, Americans think that I'm too hard on America. Non-Americans think that I let them off the hook. So I live within this, this, I live within the framework of, um, of, uh, hold on, please. Okay, no problem. My kid is pretty loud after I said <laughs> so to go do some reminding. Like I'm working mm-hmm. here. No problem. No, no worries. I mean, I hope, I hope, um, I hope everyone uh, understands because you know, yeah, we parents, so, it happens. Definitely. No, and you know, I'm, I'm not even vaguely bothered. So I'm saying um, that now, there's, let's there's, talk there's about, this cross section. There's this cross section that you live in, and everybody's firing at you. And yeah. most of us who step outside of the norms, we live in in constant uh, crossfire, like you know, firing from everywhere coming at you. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. um, and I think that that's what the work is about. You know, that don't categorize me. Yeah, you have a poem in there. It's know uh, when to fold. It's about your brother. Um, do you still have non-relationship with your brother has that improved uh, since that poem was written or is it still the same um i wrote that poem maybe like two or three years ago um you know the relationship with my brother remains quiet um we don't speak Mm -hmm. um you know i think that you know some relationships require time and space and uh, I, I understand. My my relationship yeah. with my brother is also, I guess, tenuous. Um, but when we were younger, we were tight, just like you and your brother. And then, you know, life happens, and um, 
you know, we're not we're not there. Now, your your mother, um, you talk about in your memoir, and and then you do some poems here to her. One of them is a haiku for my mother, um, that she left you um, in Jamaica. But you say that she left, you know, for her freedom. Do you want to talk to the audience about what does, what does that mean? Why does I she need to I think that women leave? don't have to. I think that a long time ago, and in many spaces, very much true now, women often don't have a choice about their bodies. I don't think my mother was ready to be a parent. And I can't say that I think that she was ever desiring of being a parent. Mm-hmm. And I think if we lived in a freer world where she had access to all the resources that she required in order to live and be happy and be safe, I don't know that she would have got pregnant. I don't know if she would have been sleeping with those men that, you know, from which the pregnancy sprang. I mean, you know, she she speaks quite definitively that my own father sexually assaulted her and that's how she became pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I feel as if she didn't want to be a mother and she didn't have that choice because even now, I mean, abortions are illegal and they can be had, of course, on the black market anywhere, but right. um, people with, you know, the fear of, you know, all the, you know, fire and brimstone coming down upon their heads, they don't necessarily make the choices and they're afraid. And then it's also costly. So I don't think she had the option. And so she was forced in my head to become a mother because you're pregnant, you have no way to um, terminate the pregnancy, so you have mm-hmm. to become a mother. And so when you become when you become this person who carries this being into the world, it then becomes your responsibility. So then you're not just giving up nine months of your life. People have this conversation, but like you, you the way that society is set up, you don't just have a kid and then just drop it off and have no yeah. consequence. The consequences mm-hmm. are always massive for a woman because of how society is set up and also because of the biological bond that you have with this kid in a lot of ways that it's, you know, it requires some, um, some, sure, some breaking, some tearing apart in order to say goodbye to the kid most times. So that, that's difficult. You know, it's, um, I, you know, I think it's better if we provide protection, if we provide people with information and uh, some, some room to be autonomous when they have sex and then, if there's a pregnancy, then there's the option to terminate long before it becomes, you know, a serious conversation or a thought in your head or a thing that you must negotiate. And then, you know, even after, if you don't get to that point and you actually have to carry a child, I wish that there were not so much um, shame, shade, punishment socially for women who choose not to become parents, even after they've been forced to or carried the baby, this, this baby yeah. too. To, to term. What do you think about love now that you're older and how do you explain love to your daughter? Like how will she recognize it? Um, because you have the, you know, poem in there that, you know, it's about endurance. You like, you fuck what you heard about falling poem. And yes. What would you yes. say to your daughter about love and, and how, you know, that, you know? That, yeah, but, you know, I mean, that love is a many pronged thing. It's got many arms, many elbows, many knees, many you know, strands of hair, it's got lots of roots. And so, um, you know, I, I, I encourage her to build a world 
that um, encourages love, that feeds it, nurtures it, and that it must be nurtured on many fronts to have friendships that she has to feed, that she must have, you know, you know, sister heart friendships, and she must have a larger community, and that her aunties are important, and that the love between her mother and her is important, and the way that you are with love should mirror almost every relationship in that there should be trust, there should be charting of boundaries, there should be consideration on both sides, and there should be the room to exit should you need to for your own safety or for the safety of the two of you. Um, and I think, you know, I think that as a base should be her, her, her foundation. It should be the thing upon which she places her feet every time she thinks about, negotiates, goes for, entertains the notion of love. So by the time the romantic love approaches, she already has a firm grasp on the basics because that thing that you talked about at the beginning of the conversation where all logic flies out of your head because you're in love, mm-hmm. you want to have, you have a, 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 a rubric, a blueprint of of trust and love and good practices that you will kind of fall back on even when you are flying high, you know, in the mm-hmm. clouds. Yeah. I think, yeah. I think having a firm base is good. And then, you know, you, you, you have to trust that, that that base will pull you back to what you should do for yourself, what you should do for the other person in order for both of you to be good in order for yourself to be good. I mean, I can't say that I have any, insight on love but I can say I have a ton of experiences mm-hmm. and if mm-hmm. I am frank and forward you know um, forward giving you know giving her information about my experiences I think she can only be better served by having that knowledge in order to make choices and she might not make the same choices I've made but she will have all the information that I have gleaned from my experiences at her disposal so she can be better equipped to make the right choice for herself. Mm-hmm. So you have a poem in here, um, not my president. Do you think now Joe Biden is your president, or who, who would be your president? Well, I think in a weird kind of way, um, you know, it begs the question of who, like, you know, Donald Trump was obviously not my president. And perhaps there are ways that Joe Biden represents me when he speaks well of the LGBT community. But then there are other things that he does that are, um, that he signs on for disturbing, like, um, you know, deportation of, you know, you know, children and not opening the borders to people who might need, you know, um, you know, refuge or, or, Mm -hmm. or help or safe space. Um, You know, because, because the problem isn't Joe Biden or, Donald Trump, the problem is America, what it was built on. And, you know, we bring us back straight back to Juneteenth when um, this country was built upon slavery. I mean, even before they dragged black, broad, black bodies from, you know, the continent of Africa, they were misusing the lives of poor people, people who weren't necessarily royal or upper class in the yeah. feudal system in Europe, where, you know, there were many castes of people and the um, the people at the top exploited the people at the bottom. And so when they added the African bodies to the mix, it was just another wrong that was lower than the feudal system allowed for 
in England or Spain, I think it is important for us to understand that the structure of capitalism, which mimics, you know, the feudal system, the royal system, that's really just a different way. But now it's uh, it's on money, and people can move up or fall down the ladder based on how much money they make or don't make, how much education they have, into what families they were born. I mean, we have to deconstruct the notion of hierarchy and hierarchy based completely on where you are born or what you look like or how much money you have. I mean, Mm -hmm. and that's the problem with America. That's how we find ourselves almost 300 years later, you know, jumping around in the streets because they finally acknowledge that, you know, uh, after they said that slaves were free, that other people were We're keeping those people enslaved anyways, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, well, now it's, it's sad that we're we have to jump around and and you know and and um it's like it's like saying you know they finally made a holiday in in um in Germany where they they're 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 celebrating that you know that the Jews no longer had to wear you know patches on their arm or something it's it, it's horrendous that you know it's become yet another commercialized aspect of the movement. Yeah, I like we, I said I think it's a it's a drop in the bucket. But um, let's talk about some things that you don't do related to poetry. Do you cook? Do you run? Do you swim? What What are some things that I you cook. do that are not related to poetry? <laughs> I, I cook. Um, I make a mean curry chicken that my kid likes. Um, okay. We make soup. Um, I I I don't bake so much. I maybe because I don't love sweets as much as other people. Mm-hmm. But I mm-hmm. I like a good you know, food. Um, my last lover and I made a ton of seared salmon with salads. We love that kind of mm. thing. Um, you know, mm. we make a bean oatmeal for breakfast. Um, <laughs> What's a bean know? oatmeal? Tell me about that. What is that? Do you have raisins? You know, you have have thing what, what do you have almonds? What do you got? We have called this soy product called Lasco that we add to it from Jamaica. We put cinnamon in. We, you know, we, we, we cook the oatmeal that you got to cook for a long time, half an hour, 35 minutes to make it. Oh, the seal cut kind? Is that yes. the seal cut? Oh, my mom loves that. My mom oh, loves the seal cut. Um, okay. But we also love sushi. Like, we, 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 we love, 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 love sushi. We'll eat sushi every day. We have uh, fallen in love with um, with Jamaican uh, Chinese food. Like, we were in Jamaica for four months. So, we love that. Um, mm-hmm. Now, but, what you know, kind of like, sushi? What's your favorite role? Um, I'm an eel avocado kind of girl, but I like salmon avocado as well. I like yellowtail. Um, my kid is, uh, she's moved through a various number of roles right now. Her current role is an avocado role, but she used to love the salmon avocado role. Um, I like the rainbow role. I mean, uh, one time she was into the smoked salmon and cream cheese, which I never liked at all, but she liked that. For <laughs> um, yeah, and, and I mean, we read, we, you know, we, we, we read some, we have a dog, um, we like to travel, we love to hang out. I mean, I went out this morning and bought a whole bunch of food, so we're going to have people over for brunch today, and it's going to be good. I mean, we, you know, we try our best to laugh as much as we can, to hug each other as much as we can, so that when we get out there to be in the middle of this difficult fight for justice, fight for equality in the world, that we are sufficiently fortified to go out there yes. and up and just kind of like <laughs> do the dancing. Yes, yes, definitely. 
I thank you so much um, for coming on, Stacey Ann, this morning and talking about your book, um, your politics, your family. You're very um, open, um, and a lot of people are not comfortable doing that. So thank you for sharing. It's like it's, oh, it's an I appreciate honor. You. I appreciate you. The honor was mine, and thank you for a lovely chat this morning. And to all the Joy Keys listeners out there, you know, um, keep listening, you know, because when she blows up and she becomes the second Joy on MSNBC, <laughs> all y'all can be like, I used to listen to her when she used to have her radio show on blah blah blah. <laughs> <laughs> Big, big love and gratitude for having me on. All right. Well, you have a great uh, brunch with your friends and family, and I will hopefully talk to you when you come out with your next book, all right? Absolutely. Peace, sis. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. I just got off the phone with poet Stacey Ann Chen. We were discussing her book, Crossfire, a litany for survival. Uh, She's a winner of the American Book Award. She also has a memoir, The Other Side of Paradise, um, she received the 2003 Drama Desk Award for her performance at Death Poetry Jam on Broadway. Um, she co-wrote that with Russell Simmons. She's also the author of the one-woman show Mother Struck and Unspeakable Things and Hands of Fire. So I'm going to be giving away some copies of her book, Crossfire, A Litany for Survival. I might give away the memoir as well, so you want to follow me at Joy Keys on Twitter. Check me out on Facebook, Saturday mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. I'll keep on mowing around this thing with the TikTok. Um, I'm going to let you know about that, but uh, right now I'm on those three platforms. And also you can email me, SaturdaysWithJoyKeys at Hotmail.com. You guys have a wonderful weekend. And um, this Wednesday I'm going to be speaking with actor Cameron Jones. He's from Amazon Prime panic show so that's going to be a special edition this wednesday coming up the 23rd at 7 p.m eastern adopt us kids presents what to expect when you're expecting a teenager learning the lingo goat g-o-a-t acronym stands for greatest of all time as in spaghetti sandwiches for dinner they're my fave dad you're the goat You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. Visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council.